Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Today's episode is called Hiding Church History. In the last several years, the internet has made information about LDS church history widely available. Up to this point in time, the church has done a pretty good job of hiding unsavory aspects of its church history from its members. We talked about that in a previous episode regarding Elder Boyd K. Packer's talk, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect. However, because of the internet, the church has been forced into a position of having to reveal more about its history than it ever has before, including many unsavory aspects which it has kept hidden for good reason. I want to say at the outset that the recent number of church essays published by the church on its website is a huge step forward for the church in being more transparent about its history. But frequently what happens when the church comes forward about its history, which it hasn't come forward before, the argument is heard, well, the church really didn't know about this until now. And as soon as they found out about it, they let the members know. There has been no active attempt on the part of the church to hide its church history. What we're going to be talking about today is one concrete example of how that is not the case. One concrete example of how a church leader did in fact take remarkable steps to hide a challenging aspect of church history. And what I am talking about specifically is the 1832 account of Joseph Smith's first vision. All Mormons are familiar with Joseph Smith's first vision. It is talked about in church frequently. It's taught to investigators by the missionaries. It is one of the things that is most familiar to Mormons. But the version of Joseph Smith's history that Mormons are familiar with is the one that got canonized in the Pearl of Great Price. That is the 1838 account. There are four accounts, though, of Joseph Smith's first vision. And when I say four accounts, I mean four accounts that are directly tied to Joseph Smith either writing it or relating it directly to someone else who then wrote it down. Those four accounts are 1832, 1835, 1838, which is the official version, and 1842, which is the Wentworth letter. For purposes of this episode, I'm going to be focusing on the 1832 account. The 1832 account is remarkable in what it says and also in what it does not say. The 1832 account is the only account that actually appears to be written in Joseph Smith's handwriting. In other words, he didn't dictate it. A scribe took it down in the scribe's handwriting. This is actually written by Joseph Smith. And because it is the earliest account of Joseph Smith's first vision and written in his own hand, it becomes very important from a historical point of view. Now, all Mormons are familiar with Joseph Smith's 1838 account of the first vision, in which Joseph Smith describes praying to the Lord, a pillar of light appearing, and when the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. The 1832 account of the first vision, however, is unusual in that it does not appear to mention two beings that Joseph Smith saw. In fact, he mentions only one being that he saw. And what he says in his 1832 account is, 
A pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me. I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. So in Joseph Smith's 1832 account of his first vision, he mentions only seeing one being, and he describes him as the Lord. As you go through a little bit further in that account, it is clear from the context that the Lord he's describing as seeing is Jesus Christ. Because he goes on to say, and he, and he, the Lord, spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes. And then it says, I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. So it's clear from the context that the Lord that Joseph Smith describes as seeing in his 1832 account is, in fact, Jesus. But he does not mention seeing another being. He does not mention seeing two beings. He does not mention seeing the father of Jesus in this first vision. After I got back from my mission in 1981, I began studying church history in depth. And it wasn't long after my mission that I came across the 1832 account in a book, which I believe was written by Paul Cheeseman, and it was called The Keystone of Mormonism. And in it, he had the different accounts of the first vision, including this one. So I had been aware of this for quite some time. And what I had done to deal with this issue is basically the things that most apologists do to deal with this issue. It's uh, first off to kind of ignore it, put it on the shelf. It's second off to say, well, Joseph Smith said he saw the Lord. He said he saw one being, but he didn't say he didn't see two beings. So he could have seen two beings, but only mentioned one, even though that sounds a little bit strange if you see the Father and the Son that you're only going to mention the Son. But it's possible. And so I had managed to come to a place in my mind where I was able to deal with that, at least at the time. Now I want to tell you a personal story. One of my dearest friends back in the 1980s, after I got back from my mission, was a guy named Steve Sanderfer. We were good friends. We did things together. He joined the church during this time period. And he went on a mission. He went south of the border, down to South America somewhere, served a mission, came back. He got married, had a son and then moved out of state to go to college. It was sometime after he'd moved out of state that he stumbled upon the 1832 account of the first vision. And I believe that at the time, he came upon it in Dean Jesse's book, The Personal Writings of Joseph Smith, which was published in 1984, dealing with the personal writings of Joseph Smith. This came up in the first few pages of that book, and it was kind of a big deal at the time. Steve Sanderfer got wind of it, and the next thing I know, he is calling me, from college out of state to let me know that he has left the church over this issue. I was very saddened by this. I'm telling you this story in order to explain that, first off, most people are not aware of this issue. Most members in the church don't know anything about the 1832 account of the first vision. But of those that do find out about it, many of them are able to not have a problem with it, to be able to resolve it in one of the ways I've mentioned or some other way that they might have, and it doesn't knock them for a loop. On the other hand, Steve Sanderfer could not deal with this. He felt that this was completely inconsistent with the story that he had been told about Joseph missing two beings in this first vision, the father and the son, and the story that he had been teaching investigators on his mission in South America. And then he comes back and he finds out, wait, there's an earlier account that only mentions Joseph missing one being. I think that he was not only confused by this, but he felt in some sense betrayed by the church for not having told him about this before. And as is often the case, people who learn about this information 
the information itself may be troubling enough to them, but the idea that the church has been hiding it from them is often worse than the information itself. The fact that Joseph Smith, in his 1832 account, mentions seeing one being is not necessarily contradictory to all of his subsequent accounts in which he mentions seeing two beings. Because, as I said earlier, the fact he mentions only one does not necessarily mean that he did not see two. But it does seem rather strange. In the 1832 account of the first vision, and less remarked upon, however, is an absolute contradiction with the official account. And that contradiction has to do with, when was it that Joseph Smith found out that all the churches were in apostasy? We're very familiar with the 1838 account, the official account in the Pearl of Great Price, because we know that he didn't find that out until he actually had the first vision. After the two beings appeared to him in the 1838 account, if you look in the Joseph Smith history in the Pearl of Great Price, verse 18, it states, My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, than I asked the personages, plural, who stood above me in the light, which of all the sects was right. For at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong. This statement contradicts what Joseph Smith has to say in the 1832 account, which he wrote by his own hand six years earlier, before the 1838 account. In the 1832 account, Joseph Smith says that before he went to the grove to pray, he had already concluded that all the churches were in apostasy. Here's what he says there. My mind became exceedingly distressed, for I became convicted of my sins. And by searching the scriptures, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith. And there was no society or denomination that was built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. So that statement there in the 1832 account is the one necessary contradiction between it and the 1838 account in which Joseph Smith is clear that at the time he went into the grove to inquire of the Lord which church to join, it had never entered into his heart that all were wrong. In spite of the fact that that is really the necessary contradiction between the two accounts, most attention is focused on the number of beings who appeared to Joseph Smith, and that was the case with my friend Steve Sanderford, who left the church, and in spite of everything I could do to try and explain to him how to reconcile this, how it wasn't a big deal, how he could continue in faith in spite of this information, he never came back to the church. So I do get that this can be very disconcerting to members of the church when they find out in the 1832 account, Joseph Smith records seeing only one being. It appears that information has been getting out through the Internet. Well, we all know that information has been getting out through the Internet about negative aspects of the church history. It has become more broadly disseminated, and more and more people who are members of the church are finding out about this 1832 account. That's one of the reasons, I suspect, why one of the essays deals with the different accounts of the first vision. And earlier this year, on May 1st, 1916, Elder Richard J. Maines gave a worldwide devotional address for young adults from Salt Lake City in which he says he was asked by the higher-ups to address this very issue. Elder Maines doesn't spend a lot of time on the 1832 account, but to his credit, he does mention it. 
Here's what he says about it in his address. First, the 1832 account is the earliest written account of the first vision. It is part of a six-page autobiography, most of which is in Joseph's hand. This document has been in the church's possession since it was written. After the trek west, it remained packed in a trunk for several years, and then was generally unknown until it was published in a master's thesis in 1965. It has since been published repeatedly, including on LDS.org and in the Joseph Smith's papers. So even though I knew what the content of the 1832 account of the first vision and have since the early 1980s, I was struck by the statement that Elder Maines made that the 1832 account was generally unknown until it was published in a master's thesis in 1965, which made me wonder, why is it that the first time it's being published is in a master's thesis, and why is it the first time it's being published in 1965? In other words, why isn't this something that the church brings forth and the church announces and the church discloses? It just seems strange that it would be showing up in a master's thesis in 1965. Not long after this address in May by Elder Maines, I was listening to a podcast in which some people were talking about what he had said. And one of the people on the podcast made a very interesting statement. What that person said was, they were not so troubled by the content of the 1832 account of the first vision as they were by why it was that it did not come to light until 1965. Well, that really got my curiosity up because I sensed there was a story here. So I started investigating this question. Why was it that the 1832 account did not show up until 1965 in a master's thesis? And why was it that this person on the podcast, who obviously knew a lot about the subject, said that he was more troubled by the manner in which it came forward than he was by the actual content of the 1832 account. So I started investigating, and I was very happy to find out that there was a dialogue article written two years ago in 2014 by Stan Larson that addressed this very question. The short answer to the question is that the 1832 account was not published until 1965 because Joseph Fielding Smith didn't want it published before then. Joseph Fielding Smith had the pages describing the 1832 account of the first vision cut out of the book in which it was written, and he stored them in his office safe for decades. Going along with this, Leonard Arrington, who was church historian from 1972 to 1982, wrote a book called Adventures of a Church Historian. And he said this about Joseph Fielding Smith, who had been the church historian earlier before Leonard Arrington was a church historian. Here's what he said. Joseph Fielding Smith's attitude during the 25 years he had served as church historian was as an appointed watchman to protect the image of the church from potential critics and enemies. Few scholars had been given access to the primary documents in the archives. Persons could not do in-depth research without Smith's approval. And Smith seldom assented. That's the end of the quote. Well, obviously something had changed by the time of 1965, and Paul Cheeseman, whose master's thesis it was, in which this was first published, was allowed access to the 1832 account. The question then is, how was it that Cheeseman got access to the 1832 account in 1965? And that gets us into the timeline of what occurred. 
1832, Joseph Smith records his handwritten history, including an account of the first vision. This was apparently a preliminary attempt on his part to begin recording church history. And as I said before, he did it in his own hand. This was written in a book, which is called Letter Book One in the Church Archives. He wrote not only about the first vision, but he also wrote about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon in the first three pages of Letter Book One. This was never published. Instead, in 1838, another account of the first vision was written or dictated by Joseph Smith, and that is the one that got published, that is the one that got traction, that is the one that got canonized in The Pearl of Great Price, and that is the one in which two beings are mentioned. Now, technically, there's another account in between the 1832 account and the 1838 account. That's the 1835 account, and in the 1835 account as well, two beings are mentioned. But it's the 1838 account that gets canonized and is the most famous. It was canonized in The Pearl of Great Price in 1880. Now, in the meantime, in 1847, Brigham Young and the Saints head west to Utah, and along with them, they bring boxes of church records to Salt Lake City. And among these records is also Letter Book 1, in which the 1832 account is written. The Saints had a lot of things to deal with once they got to Utah, besides scholarly endeavors and going through ancient records that they brought with them, figuring out what was in there, cataloging them, and becoming aware of their contents. So it's unclear when or who might have known about this 1832 account at this time. What we do know is that in 1901, Joseph Fielding Smith began work in the church historian and recorder's office. Nine years later, in 1910, Joseph Fielding Smith was called as an apostle, and in 1921, Joseph Fielding Smith was called as the church historian. Sometime between 1921 and 1935, as part of being church historian, Joseph Fielding Smith and whoever was working with him were processing through the boxes of Nauvoo records, and they discover letter book one, approximately 100 years after it was originally written down by Joseph Smith. The first three pages of Letter Book One contain this account of the first vision. It is perhaps difficult for me to imagine the feelings and the thoughts that went through Joseph Fielding Smith's mind upon reading this for the first time. He has grown up, as all the saints had, and as we have today, understanding Joseph Smith saw two beings. That's the story. That's the way the story has always been because that's what happened. It is in stone. It's the official account from 1838. And now Joseph Fielding Smith is reading letter book one. And in the first three pages, he's reading Joseph Smith's own handwriting. And he's reading an account in which Joseph Smith mentions seeing only one being in the first vision. Joseph Fielding Smith is not only the church historian at the time, he's an apostle of the church, he's a leader in the church, and there's also a family bond involved because Joseph Fielding Smith's dad was Joseph F. Smith, Joseph F. Smith's dad was Hiram Smith, and Hiram Smith was, of course, Joseph Smith's brother. So there's a lot of factors at play here. I can't pretend to understand how difficult this must have been for Joseph Fielding Smith when he encountered this. It's not simply a matter that looks like it could be striking at the heart of the fundamental, foundational event of Mormonism, but it's possible that he also saw this as reflecting negatively on 
his family and his family name. Regardless of what feelings he experienced, the reason I say it must have been difficult for him is because he had a choice to make. Joseph Fielding Smith has now encountered this. He can do one of two things. One, he can make it public. Two, he can hide it. What the history shows is he went for option number two. There was already a restricted section of the church archives, which means that you had to have special permission just to go into the church archives and the church library to see special things such as letter book one or original documents. You couldn't go in there without getting special permission. But that wasn't enough for Joseph Fielding Smith. What he did was he or someone at his direction took a pen knife and cut out the first three pages of letter book one, the pages containing the 1832 account of the first vision. And Joseph Fielding Smith took those three pages and locked them away in his personal safe in the church historian's office. That way, Joseph Fielding Smith could control this information, could hide this information away, and make it so that he could be sure nobody else saw this. It appears that this happened sometime in the 1930s, probably between 1930 and 1935, that these pages were cut out and locked away in Joseph Fielding Smith's personal safe. He then took the rest of the letter book and put it in the restricted section of the church archives. So now the question arises, now that Joseph Fielding Smith has got it locked away in his safe, away from anybody knowing about it, how was it that 30 years later, in 1965, it ends up popping up in Paul Cheeseman's master's thesis at BYU? and thereby hangs the tail. Here's what happened. It appears that, though very, very few people could actually see what was in Joseph Fielding Smith's safe, word got around that he had a safe and he had sensitive documents sequestered in that safe. Sometime in the 1940s or possibly the early 1950s, a church authority named Levi Edgar Young knew that Joseph Fielding Smith had some sensitive documents stored in his safe. Levi Edgar Young was not some guy off the street. He was the president of the first quorum of the 70. So if you know about the LDS Church, you know that's a big deal. That's very high up in the church hierarchy. However, it is still below an apostle. In fact, it's probably just below an apostle. And Joseph Fielding Smith was an apostle. Levi Edgar Young, president of the first quorum of the 70, approaches Joseph Fielding Smith during this time period, early 1940s to 1950s, asks him, if Joseph Fielding Smith will open up the safe and let Levi Edgar Young look at what he has there. Joseph Fielding Smith refuses. He says, you don't have the authority to make me do this, and I'm not going to unless you get clearance from somebody higher up. Well, Levi Edgar Young goes over Joseph Fielding Smith's head, gets clearance, brings it back to Joseph Fielding Smith, and Joseph Fielding Smith now has to open up his private safe to Levi Edgar Young. But before he does that, he extracts a promise from Levi Edgar Young that he's not going to copy anything that he finds in the safe, and also he's not going to tell anybody else about anything that he sees in the safe. So Levi Edgar Young takes the blood oath, looks around in the safe, finds this 1832 account of the first vision, and reads it. Now skip forward to 1952 or 1953. An amateur historian named Lamar Peterson is interviewing Levi Edgar Young. And as part of his interview, Levi Edgar Young brings up the experience he had when he looked in the safe and saw this 1832 First Vision account. But Levi Edgar Young 
doesn't say what's in the first vision account. He's still under the blood oath, and I'm using that euphemistically and with air quotes. But he's still under this promise that he gave to Joseph Fielding Smith to not tell anybody about it. So what Levi Edgar Young tells the amateur historian Lamar Peterson is, he says, in the safe, when I was allowed to look in the safe, there was a strange account, quote-unquote, a strange account of the first vision. But Levi Edgar Young tells Lamar Peterson that Lamar Peterson really needs to keep this confidential. And Lamar Peterson does keep this confidential, does not tell anybody else about Levi Edgar Young finding the strange account of the first vision until 1963, Levi Edgar Young dies. And Peterson has kept this information completely confidential up until then. But now that Levi Edgar Young has died, Peterson decides he's going to share this information. And the person he shares it with is Gerald and Sandra Tanner. In early 1964, Peterson tells Gerald and Sandra Tanner that Levi Edgar Young had been allowed to look into the private safe of Joseph Fielding Smith and that in it was a strange account of the first vision because that's all that Peterson knows is it's a strange account of the first vision. Well, now that it's in the Tanners' hands, the Tanners start making hay of it, writing about it, and they even write to Joseph Fielding Smith directly in 1964 asking him to see this 1832 account that they now know exists. Joseph Fielding Smith refuses their request. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say he ignores their request. But now Joseph Fielding Smith knows the information about the account has been leaked. People outside know that he has it. So pressure is put on him to do something. And the something that Joseph Fielding Smith decides to do is to take letter book one out of the archives, take it back into his office, and he or somebody else at his direction tapes back in the first three pages that Joseph Fielding Smith had taken out three decades before. And in the context of this, Paul Cheeseman, who is a student at BYU, is doing a master's thesis, and he's doing it about the different accounts of the first vision. As part of this, Joseph Fielding Smith makes available to Paul Cheeseman the 1832 account in letter book one so that he can use it in his master's thesis, which is published in 1965. This is why it is that Elder Maine says in his talk from May of this year, it remained packed in a trunk for several years and then was generally unknown until it was published in a master's thesis in 1965. And technically, a master's thesis is not published. At least this master's thesis was not published. Ironically, the first time the 1832 account of the first vision was actually published was not by the church it was published by the Tanners, the arch enemies of the church. The quintessential anti-Mormons are the first person to publish Joseph Smith's 1832 account of the first vision. And they actually published it based upon Paul Cheeseman's master's thesis in which he had somewhat inaccurately copied it down. Here's a strange thing about Paul Cheeseman's master's thesis. He is the first person outside the church hierarchy, who has been able to view the 1832 account of the first vision. And as part of his thesis, he devotes an entire 20 pages, from page 23 to 42, of his thesis to the question of whether one person appeared in the first vision or two people appeared in the first vision. 
The strange thing about it is that he never actually deals with the 1832 account that mentions only one. So here's Paul Cheeseman. He's the first guy to see this 1832 account that mentions only one. He devotes 20 pages in his thesis to the question of whether there's one or two, and then he basically ignores the 1832 account that mentions only one. Instead, what he does for 20 pages is he focuses at length on all the other versions after the 1832 account. And things that were said by Joseph Smith to other people, they wrote it down in their journal, that all mention two people. It seems to be his purpose to focus on the vast number of accounts subsequent to 1832 that mention two people as a way of arguing against the 1832 account without ever actually mentioning the 1832 account. I don't know if this is something that Paul Cheeseman would have done of his own or if this is something that he had to do in order to get his master's thesis accepted by the Brigham Young faculty. But regardless, that's the way it is in his master's thesis. So this is how Joseph Fielding Smith, as church historian and as apostle, went to extreme lengths to hide the 1832 account of the first vision for three decades. Who knows if it would be hidden today in the same safe, except for the fact that information about its existence got leaked and he was forced to reveal it in some way, which he chose to do through a master's thesis as opposed to do it through a church publication. Obviously, since that time, it has been published in a number of church publications, and this is the fact that Elder Maines focuses on when he talks about it in May. He mentions that it remained packed in a trunk for several years and then was generally unknown until it was published in a master's thesis in 1965, it has since been published repeatedly, including on LDS.org and in the Joseph Smith Papers. So Elder Maines focuses on how many times it's been published since 1965, but goes into absolutely no detail as to why it wasn't published by the church before 1965 and why it was that in 1965 it wasn't published by the church, but was published in a master's thesis. Elder Maines mentions it's been published in the Joseph Smith Papers, which is available online and is an extraordinary effort by the church to put papers relating to Joseph Smith up on the Internet and available for anyone who wants to study them to study them. Interestingly, I checked the link to the Joseph Smith Papers project, and I can find, and you can find, letter book one in which the 1832 account of the first vision now appears after it's been taped back in in 1964. The funny part is, is that if you zoom in on the pages where they connect to the book, you can actually see where they are taped back in. So after Joseph Fielding Smith's attempt to cover up this information has failed, it's been leaked, now it's being made public against Joseph Fielding Smith's will, apparently. So now the church has to move into a new position relative to the 1832 account. It's been hidden for three decades. They haven't had to deal with it because basically nobody knows about it. It's locked up in a safe. But after the existence was leaked through the events that I've already talked about, and it did become public knowledge, now the church had to deal with it in some way or another. And generally the way the church dealt with it was to say, it's no big deal. Joseph Smith mentioned seeing one person it doesn't mean he didn't see two people, and you have to read it in the context of all the subsequent versions that came out in which Joseph Smith mentioned seeing two people. This is the tactic that Elder Maines takes. Here's another quote from his talk. In this document, Joseph relates distress at not knowing where to find the Savior's forgiveness. He testified, 
The Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. So there Elder Maines is quoting from the 1832 account. The Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. By the way, want to give him credit for actually quoting the problematic sentence. Then he goes on to say, though, which some have interpreted to mean that he referred to the appearance of only one divine being. Though, when read in light of the other documents, this phrase can be understood to mean that God the Father opened the heavens and revealed his Son, Jesus Christ, to Joseph. So that's the end of the quote. To which I have to respond, well, yes, I suppose it could be read that way. That when Joseph Smith writes, the Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord, he could be understood as meaning the Lord who opened the heavens is Heavenly Father, and I saw the Lord, and that Lord is Jesus Christ. So, yeah, it could be interpreted that way. But it is important to note that the only reason that we even feel the need to read it that way is because Joseph gave subsequent versions in which he said two beings appeared to him and not just the one. In other words, if none of those subsequent versions had ever occurred, and all we had was the 1832 account, there is no way that a reasonable person coming to that would read that as anything other than Joseph Smith saying he saw only one being. It also requires us to account for the strange fact that Joseph would be referring to both God the Father and his son Jesus Christ by the single term Lord. Also, I think it's important to mention in fairness that it would make a difference if the 1832 account were not the first account that we have of the first vision. In other words, if there were an earlier account before the 1832 account that mentioned two beings, and then this account comes along and it mentions one, and then subsequent accounts mention two, this might be looked at more as an anomaly. If Joseph had previously mentioned two beings, this could more likely look like a mistake or perhaps inartful wording on his part. But because it is the first account, the fact Joseph mentions seeing only one being makes it sound more like a story that evolved over time. I'm not saying that that's what it was. I'm just saying that that's what it makes it look a lot like. I mentioned to you earlier that there's a Gospel Topics essay on the different First Vision accounts, and Elder Maines, in his May talk, quotes from that. And here's what he quotes from it. He says, The Gospel Topics essay, First Vision Accounts, states, The various accounts of the First Vision tell a consistent story, though naturally... They differ in emphasis and detail. Well, I think if you look at the different accounts objectively, it's pretty clear that the one thing that the various accounts of the first vision do not tell is a consistent story. They vary markedly between the different accounts. So much so, in fact, that Joseph Fielding Smith felt compelled to cut the 1832 account of the first vision out of the letter book in which it was contained and hid it in his safe for decades. I mean, think about what an extreme action this is that Joseph Fielding Smith takes. Now, I want to give him credit for the fact that he didn't just burn it because I've talked about this with other people and they said, well, why didn't he just burn it? So he could have burned it, he could have destroyed it, he could have put it in the paper shredder. He didn't go that far. But what he did do is take a one-of-a-kind historical document written by the founder of the church, Joseph Smith, and he took a penknife to it and cut the first three pages out. That is an extreme step, especially when you couple it with hiding it in his safe. I know that now it is common for apologists to say that the differences in the 1832 account 
are no big deal and then seek to explain them away, choosing to focus on the similarities rather than the contradictions. My only response to this now is to say that their argument isn't with me, their argument is with Joseph Fielding Smith, who apparently felt quite differently. If Joseph Fielding Smith had felt the 1832 account was no big deal, it seems unlikely he would have cut it out and hidden it in his safe for three decades. And this raises the next problem, which is, once we know the story about Joseph Fielding Smith hiding the 1832 account of the first vision in his safe for decades and only releasing it after its existence was leaked to the public, how can any Mormon have confidence that church leaders today are letting them know the whole story of church history? What am I to think when the quintessential anti-Mormons, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, end up being more honest about church history than the church itself. A final note under this section is that the church is claiming to be more transparent than it's ever been. And in fact, the church is being more transparent than it's ever been. I want to emphasize that because this is a huge step in the right direction from my point of view. And yet, the doubt lingers as to whether the church continues to hide information about church history from its members. Information that may not be out there as much on the internet, information that they may not feel they're forced to disclose because more and more people are finding out about it. It's comfortable to say, well, we know about what Joseph Fielding Smith did with the 1832 account of the first vision, but that was a long time ago. That was then. This is now. Now the church would never do anything like that. The question is, how would we know if they were? And here I have to bring up this point. We know the church cannot hide the 1832 account anymore because its existence was leaked. Now they've published it several times. They've tried to put it in context with Elder Main's talk, with the church essay dealing with the different accounts of the first vision. But what they can hide is the history of how Joseph Fielding Smith cut the 1832 account out of the letter book and hid it in his safe for three decades. And they do. The church is not telling people about this aspect of church history, which has to do with how Joseph Fielding Smith hid church history. And once more, I just want to look at Elder Maine's quote again, because it sounds like from what Elder Maine's is saying that he's pretty knowledgeable about this 1832 account and its history. Listen to the words he uses. First, the 1832 account is the earliest written account of the first vision. It is part of a six-page autobiography, most of which is in Joseph's hand, so he knows all this. The document has been in the church's possession since it was written. Yes, he knows that too. After the trek west, it remained packed in a trunk for several years, and then was generally unknown until it was published in a master's thesis in 1965. It sure sounds like Elder Maines knows about the incident with Joseph Fielding Smith and is choosing his words carefully to get around it and not to mention it. Remember, he says, and then was generally unknown until it was published in a master's thesis in 1965. Well, the words generally unknown can cover a lot of ground, but it may be that he feels it safer to use this phrase than to tell the public what really happened with it and how it was hidden in Joseph Fielding Smith's safe. So the point I'm trying to make in conclusion is that even though the contents of the 1832 account of the First Vision is now out in the public domain and the church is having general authorities talk about it and having other people write essays about it on the church website, the history of how the 1832 account was cut out of the letter book and hidden in a safe for three decades and not released by the church until its existence was leaked in the 1960s, 
that part of church history is still being hidden by the church. Or at least it sure as heck isn't being talked about by the church, which some might think amounts to the same thing. So even though the church continues to say today that it's being as transparent as it possibly can be, the facts appear to paint a different story. And this is one example in particular. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 